lot of people don't realize is that Pong was not the first video game released. That credit actually goes to a bit of an obscure game called Computer Space by a small Silicon Valley electromech arcade company called Nutting Associates, who, sought out by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney of Atari fame, who had created SysG Engineering in a small, sleepy town of Mountain View, California. Bushnell had created the game to be a coin-operated version of Space War, one of the earliest examples of a video game created by a team over at MIT in 1962, using a new DEC PDP-1 minicomputer. Computer Space is your basic space shooter combat game. The player controls a rocket that fires missiles at enemy UFOs and avoids getting hit by enemy UFO fire. By today's standards, it is far from glamorous, high-tech, or even fun. But 50 years ago, this somewhat boring game in its very custom cabinet was the start of the video game craze and a revolution in technology in the United States. No one had seen anything like this before in the coin-operated arcade business. Until then, it had been mainly pinball, electromech, carnival midway-type games, quiz games, and gambling-type machines. Computer space was an enigma in the field. Players didn't seem to understand it fully, and it proved extremely difficult to play. It still did well for SIGG, moving around 1,200 to 1,500 units in two years, but Nutting Associates, and particularly Bushnell and Dabney, have been hoping for a much larger success. It did well around college campuses, particularly with engineering students, but not in the typical bars and blue-collar type work environments where coin-op machines were located. So let's talk for a minute to start off about the cabinet and the tech involved. Yeah, so the fascinating thing about computer space, what I always found was just the, honestly, just like your approach or your walk up to that cabinet, um, nobody had seen anything like that at that time. You know, you're also, you, you got to think 50 years ago, 1971, We've discussed about it before. The influence of the space race, the influence of the moon landing on technology is vast. I think we're still realizing it today. You know, the jump in technology from 1969 to today uh, is so advanced that I think historians can't wrap their heads around it just yet. When you walk up to this cabinet, there was never, you've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like it still to this day. It's this giant fiberglass body. Uh, Bushnell, when the game was completed, Bushnell wanted to house it in something very interesting. So he paid a local like jacuzzi pool guy in Silicon Valley to, uh, he built the cabinet of clay and then he had this jacuzzi guy mold it. And then pour the fiberglass in and it becomes this rounded, essentially kind of like a, looks like a spaceship type cabinet. Uh, there's curves on it that are very influenced from the hot rod culture in California at that time. And the curves on it are actually obviously very influenced by the, the, the sexual revolution going on at that time. So it's it's meant to look like this sexy space you know science fiction spaceship like something out of a movie you know yeah well also the colors it's very eye-catching and it comes in kind of hot rod colors it comes in red with the speckled paint uh, glitter speckled paint almost green so it's it's not this sort of boring bar top carnival type uh, natural woods and browns and things like that yeah it comes in this uh canary yellow initially and then 
there's a red metal flake that you mentioned, and there's the blue metal flake that you mentioned, and then there, a year later in 72, they released a two-player version of it, which um, has joysticks, and that comes in a green metal flake. So all that metal flake stuff is very, very influenced by the hot rod culture and the colors going on, you know, these hot rod, you know, custom cars at the time being being made by like George Barris and the likes of, of, of him out in California. So you mentioned that the two player game came with joysticks and that kind of brings us to one of the main problems with computer space and maybe why it didn't catch on as much is that people weren't really ready for the system of controls that it had and the kind of idea of controlling something on a television screen so it was a little too uh was a little too abstract i think for people and it was a little too kind of disconnected from the controls uh and i think a a lot of that plays into why it didn't catch on but talk talk a little bit more about that what we mean by that i I think yeah it definitely didn't catch on one because the control controls and the gameplay is actually rather difficult with the controls, because it's just buttons, right? You have a rotate, you have a shoot, and you have a a thrust button on it, and it's it, that's it. You don't have a joystick that you're nowadays you're used to controlling with the joystick, any arcade game. Um, and I think the tech kind of went over people's heads. The gameplay itself went over people's heads. You're going from simple plunger paddles you know pinball machines that were the most popular at that time especially in in bars and stuff like that around silicon valley where they mainly tested any machines they they were putting out at that time to something where you're allowing the player to walk up to a tv screen and they're and they are controlling what's happening on the TV screen. So that's mind blowing at that time, you know, and the, the tech I think went over people's heads, but also to talk about the tech, it's also brilliant. So what they did is they they have three separate board sets, one for the controls, one for the monitor, one for the game itself, whatever, so that you can get, you can actually play the game on the TV, on the screen. The other thing with the screen is they literally took, I think it's a 15-inch, it's a General Electric 15-inch portable television set. And what they did with that was they modified it by hijacking the signal so that it would play what the board sets telling it to play on the screen and so that you couldn't interact with it. Now, the one that we have in our collection took us years, years and years to refurbish and get working. And it wasn't until we met our good friend, George Portugal, who you will definitely hear from at some point in time in this podcast, um, for his brain to come over and meet with myself and, and Bill Herring, who used to work with us, and figure out how to fix our computer space. We got our computer space on loan. Then it became a permanent gift to us after we fixed it. But we had it on display. It's just a static display. You couldn't interact with it. You couldn't play it. Because when you open up the back of our cabinet years ago, the entire chassis 
on the TV was broken into actual literal pieces. This is an old tube TV. The chassis shattered. We had no clue what was going on with the board set. We knew there were some capacitors on it that were leaking. So fast forward a few years, we meet George Portugal. George Portugal is literally like an electronics genius. Um, he's actually a, uh, he's a brain scientist by trade. He's literally, he's a neuroscientist by trade, this guy. So uh, our friend George, in his spare time, decides to take apart freaking ancient arcade cabinets and ancient video games and repair them and mod them and make them work, which is fascinating to me. As soon as I met him, I'm like, I was like, what, you're a neuroscientist? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I heard you have a computer space and I want to help you guys fix it. Sure enough, I let him take the board sets home with him. He did everything to the board sets. He cleaned them, but he also replaced everything capacitors. Brought it back, and I said, yeah, that's great, dude, awesome. But we're not going to be able to see this because we need to repair the television. And I couldn't find a direct replacement, a donor TV for our cabinet. He ended up finding a donor TV for us, which was a year later model TV, same model, but a year later, 1972, I believe, General Electric Portable Television Zone. So he gets this thing shipped to us. And I was amazed that he even found it because years prior, I had found one online. And I called the guy frantically who was selling it. He was out west. I called him. I said, you know, hey, I'm interested in you have this posting of this General Electric Portable TV set online, whatever. He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, uh, I haven't taken that down. I sold that a few months ago. I was like, oh, damn it. You know, I was like, you know, let me ask you something. What'd you get for that TV? He's like, oh, I got $750 for it. And I was like, what? I was like, it's a black and white TV for 15 inch, you know, what? it's, you know, nothing, whatever. I'm trying to play it off, whatever. He's like, He's like, yeah, dude. He's like, are you building a computer space? And I got like real quiet. You know what I'm saying? I got like real quiet. And I was like, shit, this guy found me out. Like he totally knew what he freaking had. So he got 750 bucks for a, a 1971 black and white TV, guys. That's like, these, thing are, these things are worth pennies. These things are absolute pieces of crap right now. Who, who wants one? But this guy knew what he had. And he knew that somebody would come looking for it to basically have it as a dorm TV for computer space. Fast forward, George finds this one a year later. He gets it shipped here. We get it for a song because it was in 1972. And the chassis matches our chassis. So we take our chassis out. We take our tube out. We take our frame out, the whole thing. And it's sitting on our workbench. And we take apart the, the donor. We take the chassis out. We put it next to our chassis on the on the on the on the workbench, and we turn on turn it over, and you can see where Dabney and Bushnell jumped the wires to hijack the signal, where they jumped them to make it work. So literally, the only thing we had to do was turn over the new chassis, look at exactly where the wires were jumped to, and we just mimicked it and did it. We'll put that chassis back in with the original tube and original frame. That in somebody's handwriting on our computer space, it actually reads computer space on top of the frame. You know, whether it's Dabney's handwriting or whether it's Bushnell's handwriting, who knows, but it's kind of an awesome piece of history. So we get it back together and we boot this thing on and uh, this image comes up on the screen. This fuzzy image comes up on the screen and uh, 
there we have computer space after probably this game hadn't played in 30 plus years, you know? So it, it was very fascinating technology at the time. And I think that was went over people's heads at the local blue collar bar. Um, Cause Bushnell even says it, you know, that that game went over people's heads. That's why it wasn't successful, you know, and that's why they only sell the sold about 1200 or 1500 units, you know, all told. So it was too ahead of its time for just the single-player version. But even the second-player version, do you think it got much of a big difference? Because now you're looking at a joystick panel instead of just the basic buttons. But even though it had a joystick, do you think the game at its time was still too advanced for the common you know, bar local player? I think they were just too late with it. Because what happened the year afterwards is also that Dabney and Bushnell step out they walk away from nutting. And in that time, Bushnell had been to some sort of exposition convention on video games, and he had witnessed the Magnavox Odyssey. And he had seen it, and he had played it. And then he realizes, that's what I have to do. I have to coin-op that game. I have to make, because the Magnavox Odyssey is, is a TV game, is a TV console. It's, you know, the first, the first video game TV console. But he says to himself, I have to take that game. Somebody's got to make me that game. Board sets, and I have to put that into an arcade cabinet, and I have to charge a quarter for a play, and I have to make it a two-player game. So I know they moved some of the two-player cabinets of computer space, but I think they were too late in releasing as a two-player because literally right on its tails right around the same time, you know, Bushnell hijacks the Magnavox Odyssey idea and he puts it into a coin-operated arcade game and then we have Pong. And Pong just literally levels everything else. It just destroys everything electromech and it destroys everything anything that computer space should be known for. You know, people say Pong's the first video game, Pong's the first video game, Pong. Everyone I come across, I'm just like, no, you're, you're wrong. Like the first coin-operated arcade game, video arcade game, is computer space. And most people, when they see that in the exhibit, people are like, holy crap, what is this? And then you get to sit there and explain to them and tell them what it is and most of them are like, oh, Pong wasn't first? Like, no, this is the year before Pong. So this, this game, this cabinet here, this is responsible for everything we have now. You know, it kicked off the video arcade game craze. What Pong does is Pong amps it up to like a freaking 100. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, we wouldn't be where we are today without Pong. Not, not, not at all. No way. But... I, I like to say we wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for computer space, mm. you know? So you can make the argument where it's like the, um, it was just very unfortunate timing. Like the first, uh, the, you know, single player cabinet they had was just too ahead of its time. And then this, the two player cab was just too late for its time as well. Mm. It also takes, it also took a game like Pong to be very, very simple. You know, in most interviews that Bushnell has, gives about computer space versus Pong, you know, he's like, I realize my mistakes with computer space. And in order to make Pong, you have to make Pong. It's easy to pick up. It's easy to play. Difficult to master, but also hard to put down. 
So he realizes when he sees the Magnavox Odyssey, oh, if I can, if I can make this an arcade game, I can make money off of this because this is going to be the first quarter muncher. You know, like yeah. what we always called these kids in the, in the arcade. Oh, that's a quarter munching game because it was difficult to master, but also it was super addictive, man. Super addictive. When they put Pong out to test. They put Pong out to test in a, in a tavern called Andy Cap's Tavern in Silicon Valley, um, which is where they did all the tests. They put it out, and the first weekend, apparently, so the story goes, they got a call back to Atari from the, from the bar owner, and he was all pissed off. And they, they, they knew the guy. They all knew each other. And he was pissed off at Dabney Bushnell and the boys over at Atari because he's like, oh, you know, your freaking game's broken. Your game's freaking broken already. One weekend, it's game's broken. So they send the repair guy, they send the tech out to Handicap Tavern on, I guess, the Monday or Tuesday, whatever it was that. And there's nothing wrong with it. He opens it up, and he finds out that the paint bucket that was put into the cabinet to be the quarter catcher is completely overflowing to the point where it's jammed the quarter mech to play the game. So you couldn't play a game because... It was played to death over the course of a weekend. That's when they realize, oh my God, if we can make $100 in quarters or $200 or $150 in a week on, on an arcade cabinet, we've really got something here. Then Pong takes off, and then that's when you also have all of the Pong clones after that, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that computer space is technologically significant it's historically significant but in terms of culturally and commercially i think pong really is the the be all end all of that sort of very early era i agree with you there 100 percent. i just feel like for me i'm like computer space holds just like a certain place in my heart i think because of the ongoing struggle and the trouble that we personally had in just getting ours to work and then when we got to work, it was like literally like this small little miracle of, of being able to bring something back to life that's been dead for, we didn't, we didn't even know how long it's been dead for, right? And we never thought we'd ever see one, you know, I mean, I never saw one in the wild. I mean, I know there's one in the wild up in New Hampshire at the, the large, arcade, large arcade up in New Hampshire, but they're very rare to come by, you know, you, you don't see them let alone that I think we'd ever get ours to work to the point where we could actually play it, where we could actually stand up at this cabinet and play this game that, um, to me, yeah, is, is extremely historically significant. Culturally and pop culturally, no, it's not, because it's, it's so forgettable, and no one knows about it, because nobody mentions it. No one talks about it. Everyone talks about Pong. It is a movie star, though. It was featured in the movie Soylent Green from 1972, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that and that cabinet was was custom painted white. That's right. By the uh, by the comp by the movie company, right? And apparently, though, like some dude, like years later, it's online somewhere, whatever. But some dude years later claims now that he actually has that white cabinet, um, and no one's proved otherwise. But it's like this, like little bit of like arcade lore. Is it, does this dude really have this white cabinet or not? Like. Could we cross-reference the, the serial number on it, whatever? And, like, people were asking Bushnell, whatever, and they don't really know. And Bushnell's like, well, it probably could be if it's the only white one out there, then it could be the one in the movie. It's also in, it's also in uh, 
one of the opening scenes in Jaws, there's a, there's a yellow computer space in the background on that beach arcade. It's like behind some Electromech game, but you can see it peeking out. You can see the yellow curvature peeking out of the computer space, yeah. So I think you can make the argument that the story between Pong and computer space, it's almost like the story of Sweet Porridge, where like Pong was able to get it just right with the, like the duality of having it being a simple game to pick up, but even though it is difficult compared to computer space, where it's just a really difficult game to even pick up to begin with, which is why it was so difficult for it to sell in general. Yes, and Pong being a two-player game, at least to me, I look at that as it's a two-player game. It's a social interaction game you know what I always go to when I talk about with 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 kids or younger people these days or just I talk about in general like you know the arcade in my time in my day in the 80s I was a little kid of six seven eight nine years old whatever it's a different time so we were allowed out we were allowed to go out to the arcade if we wanted to and go you know waste our allowance of five bucks on quarters in arcade games over that pong starts the social network of the arcade. It literally starts the social network of the arcade because it's a two-player game. You have to have someone else playing against you. So it makes for a great date night game. It just makes for a great game for competition. It's the first real kind of like competition game. You're playing against somebody else. I mean, you're just playing tennis on a computer screen. But yeah, but there is that major social quality that Pong has that computer space definitely did not have because mm -hmm. it's this single one player game. It's honestly, yeah, it's quite difficult. I mean, I love it for its historical significance, but I mean, if it wasn't the first one, okay, if it wasn't the first arcade video arcade game ever made for me, it wouldn't be significant at all. You know, I could do without it. You know, it's gameplay is, is, kind of shit you know what i'm saying it's kind of difficult it's kind of annoying um and it plays like a lot like asteroids i don't think that we've mentioned plays that a yet. ton like asteroids you know yeah. asteroids is you know asteroids is like designed after it because yeah. bushnell is like well computer space is a really good idea let's fast forward and he's like i'm just gonna rebrand it and redo it and put it on a vector monitor instead and then he masters the computer space idea with asteroids yeah of course yeah but uh, computer space would be if it wasn't. Listen, if it was not the first, if it wasn't the, the the Godfather, it wasn't the first one. It would be a completely forgettable game. It would be nothing. It'd be nothing but a pretty cabinet, and that's it, because the gameplay is like yuck. Yeah, but I mean, even the cabinet, like uh, <clears throat> the art and the design, it's it's its own world. Like nobody's ever tried to make a cabinet that looks like computer space. No, and it's completely. You know, it is such a it is such a historical artifact of the time, right? Of industrial design of the time of the early seventies, like late sixties, early seventies. It is a victim of its own decade in a sense for design, but it is the epitome of industrial design for that time. I mean, you look at that cabinet, you're like, This is from the seventies. And it was made out of a like car fiberglass, right? Like yeah, it's the, fiberglass cabinet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you, I mean, they didn't do that afterwards. It was plywood, particle wood, you know? Everything after that was basically plywood, particle wood, you know? Yeah, it was all the cheapest materials you could get. Hmm? Well, yeah, well, I, I guess I guess computer space was more of a, I guess more of a labor love for the, for, I mean, Bushnell and 
and that company, like they were putting out a game. It was the first thing they were really trying to make a statement. Yeah, I mean, it failed, but they were really trying to make a statement kind of artistically with it. See what you could do with electronics. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, from a manufacturing standpoint, it makes sense why all the cabinets that we have seen after computer space is a hell of a lot cheaper and simpler to work on and to manufacture and to ship. And more of like a blueprint, too. Like, like most arcade cabinets are pretty fundamentally the same thing. Just you cut the wood a little bit differently. Yeah. They're also a lot easier to repair if something goes wrong because woodworking is a lot more simple than fiberglass patching. That's for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's interesting because um, when they would ship you the game, uh, there was like this little like two-page intro like note letter from Bushnell himself, like typewritten. And it says like, you know, if you get like, a, you know, if you need like a, a paint repair or whatever, it, he literally directs you to Sears. He literally directs you to Sears Automotive to buy the paint marker to restore it. Or he literally gave you his phone number wow. at, at Nutting, at Sizgy. His phone number is on that. His direct line is on that. Um, to call him and he'll send you the paint marker. He'll send you the, the paint, uh, the touch up kit that you could get from Sears. If you couldn't get to a Sears, he would send it to you. Um, fast forward. When you look up that phone number, I think it's actually like, like, a like a, like a hooker's phone number now. I think it's like a <laughs> prostitute. I le- legit like me and the guys like Googled it once. Ooh, we were like, let's Google Bushnell's original number over at Sizzy Nutting Associates. It's like for some like like hooker or prostitute or something like that <laughs> somewhere out in like Silicon Valley or something. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's really crazy. But like for that to be for that to be the instructions and the directions like, oh, yeah, call me if you get a gash. If you know if you're missing some paint, whatever in the fiberglass, whatever, call me and I'll send you a fiberglass restoration kit with the, with a with a paint touch up marker. I mean. Good luck finding Think about that. that. Think about that. Like that's crazy. You'll never that find Bushnell. You would get Bushnell himself on the phone in 1971, and he would then send you a freaking paint t- touch-up marker. Well, question: Does that mean that the paint is like a standard, like automotive, like a GM paint coat or something like that? Or it's definitely not. I mean, anything you know, paint marker touch-up for a car is never a direct match, right? right? It never is. I think it was probably a close match. I think it was used for a gap filler. I think you would get a little bit of fiberglass patch kit that you could mix real quick and put on there, whatever. Ours, our our red one has a massive gash in it from when it was dropped. And I remember when we were restoring it and we were fixing up whatever, I remember Bill Herring at the time turned to me. He's like, well, maybe if we could, you know, we could send it out and get a paint match, whatever. And, um, you know, we, we could patch this up. And we could sand it down, and then we could send it out. And we can get that part painted, or we'll get the whole thing painted over again at an automotive shop, whatever. And I was like, "No, absolutely not." And he was like, "Why?" I'm like, "Dude, that's the history of that cabinet. Somebody dropped this cabinet severely. Okay, that's the gash in it. That's probably what broke apart the chassis to begin with 20, 30 years ago, right? Somebody dropped this from a height or was slammed against something. But I'm like, that's the history of that cabinet." the bumps, the scrapes, the bruises on, on that fiberglass cabinet. And I do that with a lot of our cabinets in the collection. You know, like, that's the history of that cabinet. I don't want to... Sometimes I like leaving it 
completely unmolested with the exception of the guts and the interior to make it work. Sometimes when it's beaten to hell and it's worn out and the graphic is either peeling or the graphic is all faded and the paint is like cracking, whatever. I like that. That's that cabinet has been loved. That's the history of that cabinet, you know, and it gives off a certain warmth, you know, it has like its own Frankenstein story. Along right. With exactly. Cabinet. Yeah. Well, that's also that's what they were meant for. They were meant to go out there, make money, <laughs> get beat on. You know, people spilled stuff on them. People, you know, hammering on the buttons and sure, stuff and then come back. Punch the shit out of them. Oh, too. exactly. Oh, yeah. Flipping definitely. Them over, out of frustration. Them, you know. Yeah. It's yeah. The, it's course. the perfect environment for yeah. it, too. Yeah. You're going to find out a local bar. You <laughs> can't expect it to be in perfect condition. Exactly. <laughs> Covered in beer and cigarette smoke. And <laughs> so I just wanted to quickly say what we kind of mean by saying computer space is the first video game kind of why it's historically significant, right? So, because you did have pinball machines before, you did have these Electromech games, you even had games with screens before computer space, but computer space is significant because it's the first video arcade game where you're just using a computer board set and a television. There's no mechanics involved, there's no physical object like a pinball or something like that. It's all involving computers, and video screens. And that's what we mean when we say it's the first video game, it's the first video arcade game, and that's why it's historically significant. Yeah, and I like to follow up with, I'm very, very particular when I say it, I I always say it's the first coin-operated video arcade game. I'm very specific when I say that because that's what it is. You know, it's probably not the first video game really or... You know, that's super duper debatable. You know, um, that's always going to be a really long debate, I think, in the history of video games that will continue for the remainder of the history of video games, honestly. But it is the first coin-operated video arcade game. Bushnell sees Space War on that PDP and MIT, and he's like, I got to plagiarize that a little bit. Because I got to make money off that. You know, I can make money off of that. And that's where Computer Space comes up. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to the Arcade Age Exhibit Podcast. I hope you enjoyed your time with our hosts, Seamus, Zach, Jake, Sean, Chris, and Jose. Tune in next week. And remember, the future is now.